Good morning. If you have a Bible, we are going to be in Ecclesiastes 4 this morning. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 16. If you need a Bible, we'll have some ushers come down the aisles, slip a hand up, they'll get one in your hands, or you can scan the QR code. We encourage everyone to follow along in Scripture. There's so much here uh, in this book. I did not anticipate um, when I was planning this series, but there is so much here uh, that we can take away. This morning, we want to talk about a new perspective. Thanks for being here this morning. Those joining us online, those who will be in traditions and kindred, different places, um, some in this building, uh, geographically, but we're worshiping the same God through the same church. I do feel a little bit of pressure. Uh, Lucas gave out his cell phone number. I thought that was really brave. I want to give mine out now. So I just, I feel like, like we should all do that. So if you want to write this down, <clears throat> 911. That's it. If you don't have my cell phone number, text me and I'll give it to you. In a nutshell, the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes has taught us so many things. Time is the great eraser, death is the great equalizer. There's nothing new under the sun that can satisfy us outside of God. Life is like a vapor, it's like smoke. Life is hard to grasp, it's a mystery. Round and round it goes. It always seems we run out of time. Life is temporary, death is absolute, eternity is undeniable and judgment is unavoidable. The, the book of Ecclesiastes at, at first glance can seem a little bit depressing and sad. But keep in mind, it's all a matter of perspective because Solomon, the author, has found success in pushing God out of his life to the absolute outer limits. And so remember, what we are seeing, what we're reading, is his take on life apart from God. Buried in the recesses of our heart, deep inside of every single one of us, there lies a question, where am I going in life? One minute we think we've got it all figured out and we're like, oh yeah, I know exactly where I'm going. And then two minutes later, we're like, we're confused again, just the way we were before. When we try and answer the question, where am I going with my life? At the very center of all of us and at the very center of that question is self. How will this affect me? How will this help me? How will this hurt me? How will this advance me? How will this make me look better? How will it make me feel better? Those become the questions that we ask in life because we are fallen and we're desperate in need of a savior. We're consumed with self. We can't stop thinking about self. The number one filter we use in life when making decisions usually is self. As an example, when asked, how was your day? If somebody came up to you and said, how, you, how was your day? What measurables are you using? What metrics do you, do you use in determining how your day is going? If you're like most, your metric is happy or sad, stressed or relaxed, energized or tired, busy or bored, focused or distracted. And through our senses, all of our senses that God has given us, we constantly are we're taking in new data that we use to help us and determine how we feel at any given moment. And we all know that we can feel one way and two minutes later we can feel a completely different way because we have new data. 
It might go something like this. I was happy and then I heard something and because I believed that it was truth when actually it was a lie, now I'm sad. So far in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon's approach to life, we know just how much we can get in the way of the evaluation of life. And today from Ecclesiastes 4, I will take what we will learn and turn them into four challenges for us, four application points for us to respond to Solomon's observations. So if you're following along in the first three verses, the first one is this, bless, don't oppress. This is what it says. It says, I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never even been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. To fully understand, I think the first three verses in chapter four, we have to actually go back to chapter three. Because in chapter three, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, one, one of the most popular verses in Ecclesiastes says this, he has made everything beautiful in his time. So I want you to pick up on, on Solomon's heart here and his focus here in this one verse. He has made everything beautiful at time. So now he's talking about God. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So he's given all of his focus and attention on God. In chapter three, Solomon is starting to take notice and conclude that God has made everything beautiful according to his time. But his thinking didn't last very long. Because as Solomon looked again at the acts of oppression, now he's coming back to reality and in life and he's starting to look around, he's starting to see the oppression which was being done under the sun. He reconsiders the conclusions he made in chapter three. Namely, that although God has everything under control in his name, mankind suffers from the injustices at the hands of oppressors. Solomon observed in chapter three that both the wicked and the righteous will give an account, maybe you remember that, of their lives on the day of a judgment. Believers will stand before the bema, bema, bama seat, right? Unbelievers before the great white throne judgment seat. We all will have judgment. He now looked again at the acts of the oppression, so he's studying life again. Solomon is doing a deeper dive on the reality of people. Though they are created in the image of God, continue harming one another. That's what he's saying as he looks around. Why do we continue harming one another? So Ecclesiastes considers how many people there are who live their whole lives suffering, oppressed by the higher ups, and who never get their tears wiped away. All the power is on the side of the oppressors. Today is no different than the days of Solomon. The truth is when, when you have people, you will have oppression, evil, and injustice in the world. It is the result of our fallen nature. Our fallen nature, which baits us to a mindful position of a greater self-value. Our fallen condition is a bait to put us in this mindful position of a greater self-value while sitting on the perch of life, looking down on others. And while there is no physical caste system in America, like there are other places in the world, 
I wonder if we haven't created our own at times in our, in our own minds and in our own hearts. As we've been reminded, though we are all created in the image of God, we can find ourselves hurting one another through words, through actions, and most of which, if not all, has self as the motivator. We live in a time when we expect a regular news notification either on our phone or our watch at any given moment. In fact, as you are sitting here right now, no doubt you will probably get some kind of notification on your phone or your watch. And usually it's not good news of great joy. It's another bomb threat or school shooting or high profile divorce settlement or the death of a well-known actor or devastating storm, inflation announcement, a new COVID variant. We have become conditioned to exist in the cold and darkness of night, rarely surprised of the latest. Statistics show that about 90% of news stories have a, a negativity bias, 90%. But as consumers, let's be reminded that it is us who drive that. There's a part of the brain called the amygdala, and it's commonly thought to be used for processing fearful and threatening stimuli and the detection of threat. And, and your amygdala is on high alert at all times, uh, kind of detecting possible threats around you. And I wonder if in our modern era, if it isn't on overload. In many ways, we have become addicted to bad news. So much so that the Webster Dictionary in 2020 added a new word. It's called doom scrolling or dooms surfing. 2021, I find this fascinating. Um, they always at the end of the year uh, review the, the number one searches on Google. And in 2021, um, the number one search on Google had to do with doom scrolling, not the word, but the negative news. We used to be receivers of the news, now we're the consumers of the news. We look for it, we search for it, we scroll for it, and what we and billions of other people look for has a way of shaping the news headlines and the tone of what is being reported. In many ways, we started in our day with the negative news all around us, why? Has our society, have we become drawn to evil, to the injustices of this world? It seems that when news of another tragedy is announced, see if this isn't you, the first question asked is, where was that again? Instead of, what was that again? Because the evil of this world has gained so much traction that many are no longer surprised by the what and are now more interested in the where. It's telling of our heart because doom scrolling has conditioned us to lose sight of the people who are affected have, and have more interest in the event and location of the event. And with the frequency and access to all of the evil and injustice, the victims in many ways, sadly, have become objects. And no longer people who have incredible hurt and pain. The nature of oppression is a lack of care about others. 
and the resources of power and wealth and influence can be used to either oppress or as I'm suggesting this morning, we flip it on its head or bless. Verse two, and I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. He's just being raw here. He's just being honest. He congratulates the dead. They have escaped the tears of oppression. He goes on to say better than both the living and the dead is the one who's never even existed. While the dead have been given reprieve, the one who has never been born has never known the effects of oppression. And the living must deal with the reality of oppression every single day. The one who has never existed never has to deal with the effects of oppression nor the sin of an oppressor. And so Solomon was saying, as I look around and I take notice of the oppression and evil all around us, it would be better to not be alive. But keep in mind, keep this in mind, always, Solomon's evaluation is not coming from a place of truth and a close walk with God. It's coming from a place of lies and distance from God. He is re his reasoning is flawed because he has forgotten about God. He's pushed God away who gives the value of life in spite of oppression and evil. But also consider this. It's easy for us to look around and see all of the evil and the injustices and we start questioning God. Maybe you don't, but many, many people do. So they look around and they see all the evil and they see the, the, the oppression and they start saying, they start questioning God. That's exactly what Solomon was doing in these verses. God has made everything beautiful in its time, set eternity in the hearts of men. Shift. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors and they have no comforter. The matter of evil and injustice in the world has caused people to question God in two primary ways. And I wanna share those with you real quick because I think all of us probably have wrestled with one of these two in some way. And the first one is this. When, they, when people look around, they see the oppression and the evil in this world, they question the existence of God. Many will start with what they see, what they read, what they experience, and they use that as the starting point in determining whether there is a, a God. And if so, what is he like? Because all that is experienced seems incompatible with a loving God. It just doesn't make sense. Some will conclude that if evil is allowed to exist, then maybe God doesn't exist. It's incomprehensible for some. So oppression and injustice and evil seem to fit better in a world with a non-existent God than a God who loves, some would say. Logically, that makes sense. To reconcile the idea of evil and a loving God coexisting, I wanna share with you what a great apologist Ravi Zacharias said in his book, Why Suffering, Finding Meaning and Comfort When Life Doesn't Make Sense. This is what he writes. If evil exists, then one must assume that good exists in order to know the difference. And if good exists, then one must assume that a moral law exists by which one can differentiate between good and evil. 
And if a moral law exists, then one must recognize that there has to be a supreme moral law giver to the moral law, and thus that leads one to the existence of God. When there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there can be no definition of good. And if there's no definition of good, there can be no evil. And so the logic of the argument therefore says evil exists and God exists apart from evil. That they in fact can coexist. The first question as to whether God exists, while it's some people's question, really wasn't Solomon's question. That really wasn't what he was wrestling with because you remember back in chapter three, he was all about God for, for a few verses. So then the second question is this, the goodness of God. In other words, they make sense of God by using their experiences. Instead of making sense of their experiences by starting with the fact that there is no God and that he's sovereign over all, all of this is a reminder for us as a, remi- as a follower of Jesus to do this. It's to slow down. It's to re-engage our converted minds. It's to re-engage our converted heart and respond by being a blessing rather than oppressing. Bless, don't oppress. When we are busy blessing people, we don't have the time or the space to oppress people. When you look up to God, it's hard to look down on others. Secondly, be content, verses four through eight. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Verse seven, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son or brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless a miserable business. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Jealousy is a poor motivator and envy is exhausting. Solomon's next observation is one of the primary motivating factors as to why we do what we do. It's envy. We wanna have what others have. Not only do we wanna have what others have, we wanna have more. It's a drive that takes on this mentality of winning. Today I win, tomorrow you win. And then the next day comes. Some people love to work way too much, others don't like to work at all. There's always this value in work. God created us to work. Nowhere in the Bible do we learn to get as much as we can by doing as little as we possibly can. There's a sweet spot. There's this balance between work and rest and leisure. Verse five, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. 
The Bible speaks all the time about laziness. In fact, last, uh, I think it was last summer, we did a series, Catch 22, Proverbs 22, and then here's a reminder, Proverbs 22, 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. And here's a few things that come to mind. A sluggard loves ease more than effort. A sluggard loves leisure more than work. A sluggard loves comfort more than risk. A sluggard's love for ease and comfort blinds him from the reward of effort. Solomon uses this phrase to maximize the sluggard's thinking. I can't go outside. My goodness, there's a lion out there. The lion will eat me and kill me. I'm better off just staying right here, doing nothing. So a sluggard uses irrational thinking to justify his laziness. There's a saying, work smarter, not harder. Of course, what is behind that saying is not cut all the corners that you can, settle for uh, it's okay, or be lazy. The saying is simply suggesting don't overwork to accomplish something that could be done a different way and an easier way. Last week, we, our family gathers usually once a week, and, and then uh, I was listening to the conversation between a couple of our adult children, and they were talking about this AI creator. You guys heard about this? Um, so I did a little investigation. Apparently, it's in, it's in beta form right now, so you, you can try this, and it's, it's kind of interesting. It's fascinating. So you go onto this AI creator. You can take a picture and give it to it and, and say, hey, put my car, put my Jeep on the beach. I want to see what it looks like, and it'll do this for you. And, and then there's all this TikTok stuff going around where people are making uh, themselves into different uh, cartoon characters and that sort of thing. But I thought I would try it. So... I selected the one that's called AI Creator Helper. In other words, you could, you could send in a question and it'll, it'll just write it for you. So I simply typed into this AI Creator, give me a summary of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Just give me a summary. Instantly it starts writing back. This is what it wrote. There is one thing that I have learned in all my years of study and prayer, and that fact is that all will come to an end eventually. The universe exists in chaos, and that chaos is inevitable. All things come to an end. Nothing is forever, not even the very best of times, and that is why we must enjoy what we have while we can, while it's good, and savor every little moment of the now, for the end is inevitable and can strike at any moment. I was like, holy cow. This just made my job really easy. <laughs> my will started turning. I can write a sermon in five minutes. And what does it do, right? It scrapes the internet. Now, you don't know where it's getting all the information from, but instantly, it's this is the way they describe it. It's scraping the internet and writing it for you. Laziness. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. A life of all work and no play is no way to live. He's simply saying, rather than spending your time trying to one-up others, find some balance in life. 
We know that idleness can be destructive, but, but rest is a part of God's design. It's a part of his plan. A balanced life is only possible when we cease being obsessed with winning or one-upping. Work pleases God. Colossians 3.23 says this, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the, you still with me? Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. God's plan for work includes a Sabbath rest. If we insist on winning, rest will elude us. An addiction to work removes the joy of work. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God revealed this pattern. The pattern went like this, work and then rest, work and then rest. God initiated this in Genesis in the creation account from the very beginning. Too much work is unhealthy and too much rest is unhealthy. God wants us to find a rhythm that is balanced, a rhythm of life that is sustainable, a rhythm of life that allows for hard work and rest. Neon Dion Sanders, the great theologian, he goes by Prime. Anybody heard of him? This is what he said. Don't let your work interfere with your family. Don't let your family interfere with your work. Wherever your feet are, be there. Balance. What is the reward for pursuing a balanced life like the one God models for us in the first pages of the Bible? What's its worth? What's the worth of a balanced life? Peace and a heart that is content. He goes on, verses nine through 12, value friendships. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You've heard these few verses probably at a wedding um, or just uh, in a sermon, or you've read them or you've studied them. But it's, it's a little bit interesting because to carry forth the context of this passage, Solomon is now no doubt addressing the lonely workaholic. He's making a case for living and working in partnership being a part of a team, something bigger than yourself. They have a good return on their labor. Two can help each other up when they fall. It's better to be warm than cold. Two can resist an attacker. Solomon now directs our attention to more than, than just the two by saying a cord of three strands is not quickly broken, suggesting that while having a friend or a companion is better than being alone, community with others is even better yet. Teamwork and community adds a ton of strength. It's the old saying, there is strength in numbers. Most of us, whether you are an extrovert or an introvert, Understand the value of relationships, the value of having other people in your life, even for the person who says, I really don't like people. There's still space for other people in their life, and they know it. 
And these few verses remind us of the relationship between David and Jonathan in the Bible. God gave David one of the most incredible friendships and we always look to this relationship when we talk about friendships uh, this world has ever known. It's a story of David and Jonathan and God makes a point to, to reveal to us this friendship, not because it's a heartwarming story, but to show us and remind us that we were created for this deep connection. We were meant to have people who stand with us and for us, people who encourage us and pray for us, stand in the gap for us, people who speak into our lives, people who laugh with us and cry with us, people who will be there no matter what. When we are in the presence of friends, we are at ease. And our level of uncertainty and anxiety just decreases. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. Thank you for being here. As some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Fourth, trust God's faithfulness, verses 13 through 16. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So here we have a young man versus an old man, a poor uh, young man versus a king, a wise versus foolish, and the youth has risen to kingship through wisdom and through cunning. Solomon is acknowledging that, that this is better than the old king who has lost his ability to receive advice. There is a hidden gem in here for leaders. Good leadership requires good listening. Good leadership means seeking the right answer rather than always having to be right. The young new king is looked to as, as better than the old bad king. That's what's happening here. But this too will not last. It'll just be for a time, for a while. Eventually they will want someone new and someone better. We see it in sports all of the time. The second team quarterback is often more popular than the first until he becomes the starter, right? It's ex exactly the story of Brock Purdy, right? Trey Lance goes to the 49ers, gets hurt. Jimmy Garoppolo gets hurt. Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, I don't know if you follow sports or not, was picked number 262nd in the draft where there's 262 people picked. They call him Mr. Irrelevant because he's the absolute last person. Now, I like Brock Purdy because he was the quarterback of my favorite team, Iowa State. So I, I, I really like this guy. And this guy comes in, he's the third string quarterback, and he's won like six games in a row. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But just wait until he doesn't do well. The team will be crying for a new quarterback or a different quarterback. Solomon's saying, that's the cycle of life. By the way, I hope he wins the Super Bowl. Hope they win today, I hope they win the Super Bowl. That would be amazing. But it's the truth, isn't it? The end is inevitable and can strike at any moment. He's saying savor every moment. Our trust 
This is the last phrase. Our trust is not in a system or a cycle. It's in God. As people, we are quickly disappointed and want better. This too is a chasing after the wind, an attempt to find satisfaction in what we want and not what God has. Let me leave you with one thing. Eugene Peterson wrote this in regards to Colossians 3, 1 and 2. He says, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. God, I pray um, that is, we conclude our time here this morning with another song, um, Lord, that, that you would just continue to work in our hearts and that our eyes would be opened, that we would have this new perspective, that it isn't all about us and it isn't all about what we see as we look around. God, that you are continually trying to redirect us. May we turn our attention to you. Would you give us the eyes to see what you see? And then give us the strength to sustain us as we respond accordingly. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible book, for this wisdom, for what Solomon had to go through to teach us. May we learn in Jesus' name, amen.